Welcome to the Control the Room podcast, a series devoted to the exploration of meeting culture and uncovering cures to the common meeting. Some meetings have tight control and others are loose. To control the room means achieving outcomes while striking a balance between imposing and removing structure, asserting and distributing power, leaning in and leaning out, all in the service of having a truly magical meeting. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to join us live for a session sometime, you can join our weekly Control the Room Facilitation Lab. It's a free event to meet fellow facilitators and explore new techniques so you can apply the things you learn in the podcast in real time with other facilitators. Sign up today at voltagecontrol.com facilitation lab. If you'd like to learn more about my book, Magical Meetings, you can download the Magical Meetings Quick Start Guide, a free PDF reference with some of the most important pieces of advice from the book. Download a copy today at magicalmeetings.com. Today, I'm with Dietrich Giles, CEO of ExecuPrep, where she leads a team of consultants who turn good employees into great senior leaders that increase performance, productivity, and profit. She's also an international keynote speaker, four times TEDx talker, and author of Unstuck, Discovering Career-Limiting Actions. Welcome to the show, Dietra. Thank you. Thank you. It's so great to be on the show. I'm so looking forward to this conversation. We were just chatting about some stuff that's near and dear to my heart, so I can't wait to get in. But before we do, let's hear a little bit about how you got your start. Oh, my gosh. I think my start actually started when I was a little kid. So I was one of those kids that legitimately wanted to be a doctor, not because that was the only example I had of success, but I was going to go to college and be a neurosurgeon because I was going to be a brain doctor. Well, I got to college and there's this little place on campus that they call a science center that felt more like Dante's Inferno to me. And I felt like it was probably part of the seventh layer of hell and it rejected me pretty quickly. And so I learned that perhaps you are not meant to be a neurosurgeon, but it doesn't mean that you aren't meant to fix people's heads. And so I began to realize I want to fix people's heads. If I can change how people think, I can change their outcomes. I can change their how they live. I can change how they impact their family, their communities, and not just people, but organizations. I started realizing organizations have a head. If I can fix organizations' brains, I can impact their employees. I can impact their customers. I can impact the communities that they impact. And so I realized I'd given it the wrong name, but I was on the right path of what I was supposed to be doing. And once I figured that out, it was all over and I ended up here. (laughs) Amazing. Wow. I think that's uh, pretty compelling. What what do you think it was about the idea of being a neurosurgeon when you were a young girl? Like what what, what really drew you to that? It was... You know, what was crazy is I didn't I didn't know what I was doing. Like my mom would laugh because at the end of the school year, I would always stick around and help the teachers clear out the room. And it wasn't because I was a teacher's pet. It was because I wanted all their little worksheets so I could go home and play teacher Mm. for the summer. (laughs) (laughs) And so we would be in the back. And my grandma was like, why did the kids have the lawn chairs back there? Because teachers back there playing teacher again. And so but I remember 
remembered I could do those little things and my my cousins would start to improve in school and no one really understood why when they were struggling because we played teacher all summer long and I began to see the positive impacts with them because they were getting in trouble for doing poorly in school and now they can come out and play more. We can have more fun together. I get to be with my cousins and, you know, ride around the community and not have to worry about it. So I changed the way they thought and I was like, oh, if I can get in there and do it real time with the scalpel, it can be even more amazing. And so I started realizing pretty early on that if I could fix their heads or how they think, I could have an impact. And I just thought that meant you were supposed to do surgery with the scalpel. Mm. While I still do surgery, it's a lot less messy because my clothes are cute and I don't want blood on them. No doubt. I agree. <laughs> uh, you're you're definitely well-dressed. It's uh, You definitely take care and attention. It's impressive. A role model for me, for sure. Thank you. I appreciate that. <laughs> so when you were teaching your cousins or playing teacher, what were your favorite subjects? You know what? It was crazy because this was like elementary school. And so I didn't really understand that people had favorite topics. It was basically whatever worksheets I was able to get from the teacher. (laughs) (laughs) It was like, today we have math worksheets. We're learning the Pythagorean theorem. And today we have, you know, language arts worksheets. So we're learning verb conjugation. Today we have a Spanish worksheet. So we're learning... (laughs) Wow, you know, there is a concept I heard about years ago called interleaving, where if instruction is interleaved, where because a lot of times topics are taught from you know chapter one, chapter two, chapter three, chapter four, and this interleaving concept is that when you're covering chapter two, you might still quiz or ask questions about content from chapter one, so it starts getting layered and it's not this linear sequence, right? Your, things are out of order, so the brain can better like understand them, better integrate them. And so in a way, you were kind of interleaving in a uh, organic or a random way, just ba- based on what sheets you're able to get access to. Yeah, it was interesting. And it, you know what? It was crazy is I took that even into parenting. My kids were doing things that people would tell me they weren't supposed to be able to do. But because I wasn't the traditional minded parent of, oh, I want kids. I always wanted kids. And so I was, you know, I had this studied children. It was like, hey, can't they learn this? And so I remember one day my kids were in preschool, like before pre like four or five, three or four years old, and they were able to multiply. And the teacher was like, how can your kids multiply? I was like, oh, I taught them on the abacus and this is how you multiply. And they were like, they they are too young to learn those concepts. But I didn't know that. I didn't know that they were too young to learn the concepts. So why not? Yeah. You know, it's interesting. I had a friend who is in a Slack group with me and she experienced the same thing. Like she was helping her kids like with questions they had and the teachers got upset because they got ahead of the class. And I guess the concern was that they were going to be bored or, you know, not having anything to do because they would be ahead of the class. And it's like, wow, that seems like a strange approach like to that, right? Couldn't, couldn't the teacher look at them and say, oh, wow, now I have someone who gets it. Maybe there can be some peer-to-peer learning or you know, maybe encourage them to be a coach. Like if they're ahead, like it seems so strange to be like, oh, you're you're an outlier. So I don't know how to deal with you. And the best teachers do. I, I, my son is very much into animals and we and he's very, very smart. So he's tested as a genius. I mean, like he's that that kid. And 
every year we're, we're it's a crapshoot because we're like, okay, is he going to get the teacher that loves this, or will he, get to the, will he get the teacher that hates it? And so the teachers that love it, like one teacher, I remember he was in fourth grade. He's an animal nerd, and the teacher said, you know what? You know way more about animals than me. How about every Friday you teach a lesson on the animal of your choice? And that was how she curbed that excitement and energy that was kind of disruptive. And this kid would come home. It's like, I have to do my PowerPoint. I got to do research. He's in fourth grade researching for his presentation that he has to do every Friday on an animal because he gets to teach a whole component on an animal. That was the best school year of his life. He's a a freshman in high school now, and he still talks about it. That's amazing. You know, I think... I've always heard that as um, differentiated learning, you know, like really paying attention to the individual and trying mm-hmm. to, to craft an experience or a moment for them. And it's I, that's a testament to that teacher's skill oh, yeah. and, and um, just ability to see and notice what he needed. Yeah. But you know what? We see it in the workforce as well. Mm-hmm. Right. The leaders is, is it wasn't even just about her ability to see it. It was about her confidence in her own ability, because what often happens in education and it, we see it also in the workforce is that when you see a highly talented professional, this intimidating. Oh, my gosh. What if they take my spot? Oh, my gosh. What if I look less knowledgeable? Oh, my gosh. What if I'm challenged? As opposed to saying as a leader, if my people do well, I look amazing. So do you know how good this teacher looked? Because she had this stellar student who other teachers were saying, I'm going to bring my kids to your class for his animal lesson, because that's a much better lesson than I'm teaching. She looked like an amazing teacher. She was up for teacher of the year, literally, for doing something like that by not being intimidated by his talent. And the same is true in our workforce. If we can say, if you're great, my job is to give you a pedestal to be great because your greatness accelerates my leadership. It's a game changer. You know, I've always said that facilitators make great leaders and facilitation skills are so important for leadership. And teachers are some of the best facilitators on the planet. Oh, absolutely. Especially the good ones. Now, they're not all good. But the good ones, oh, my mm. gosh. I would I would hire a teacher in a leadership role any day, a good teacher any day, because they know how to imagine the different personalities they have to deal with every single day. And that's not even including the parents, the administrators, just in the classroom on a day-to-day basis. They have at least 20 different personalities they have to deal with and know consistently. 100%. And especially if they have any skill in social emotional learning, because it's such a critical component of how people are showing up at work. And I'm personally happy that more and more schools are bringing that into curriculum for young kids. It's going to have a positive impact on the future workforce. But we got to do something about the people that never got that. Oh, my gosh. It's it's almost like, can we just start over? (laughs) I know some of us got bullied, but like, let's let me just talk about it. Yeah. And it's crazy because you hear that. Well, you know, we always hear the adages. This generation is soft. I got bullied when I was a kid. And it's like, 
pause for a second. Can we acknowledge that just because it happened to you doesn't mean it was right and Mm -hmm. that someone else should have a similar experience just because it happened to you? Like I was in a bad car accident. I don't feel like every driver should have to experience a bad car accident to be Mm -hmm. considered an efficient driver. Yeah, it's a it's a strange human condition that we have around fairness, and you know, it's like it's almost you know this the victimizing ourselves or something that uh, that we can get into around around. Well, this happened to me, and so I toughed it out. And it's like, is that the world we want to create, or do we want to try to create a world where these things don't happen or we avoid exactly. them as best as we can? Well, we kind of say, I'm sorry that happened to you. Let's make sure, and and it's like it should be flipped. It's like. I I want to create a space where no one else has to have that experience. That's what a bad experience should do for you. Say, how do I create a space where this experience doesn't happen to others versus because I survived it, you need to survive it too, and it's okay that you have that experience. It's absolutely not. Yeah, and how can we use those experiences to be learning moments around what was nuanced about going through that that gives me perspective on helping people avoid it or helping yeah. identify some of the triggers? Yeah. And even even um, what we call it, though, you know, I was working with one woman at Leader and we were talking about sexual harassment and she spoke about her experiences being sexually harassed. But her response was, it made me stronger. And I said, no, it didn't. It made you traumatized. And what you Mm -hmm. have now is a trauma response. And that's not a real strength. So a strength is being able to take that and have a different type of learning from it, but not dwelling in it. So everything you do now is not a strength, it's a trauma response. So you're not you're not really engaging with people, you're protecting yourself from people. And so you're not getting the true breath of what they can do and what you can do for each other. And so we often think that experience made me stronger and what we're calling strength is simply a trauma response. Oh yeah, it it conjured up an image of a tortoise shell to me, you know, and that's a form of strength, but it definitely prevents connection and relationship, and it can deter true collaboration and, and curiosity <laughs> and things. And I think that type of strength sometimes can well can prevent real healing. Absolutely, and that that's the biggest part for me is that what we're calling strength is not a strength, and it prevents our healing, because the this particularly this executive that I was talking about and working with, she has a difficult time connecting with certain staff members because it's mm. it there's this protective barrier that she's calling a strength, and it's excluding a huge portion of a population that could be beneficial to her and her team and their outcomes. Wow, yeah. There's so many layers to the workforce when we really take a critical eye towards some of these things, right? And I think that is what so many people are missing. And it gets to something we were talking about in the remote work, uh, or in our pre-show chat about remote work and how people just took practices from what we were doing before and just kind of forklifted them into the virtual space and didn't take care to rethink them. But I think there's also something even more insidious here, which was the practices that we were employing before were still short-sighted. And now when we move them in a new space, we're not taking them for granted anymore. They're, it's not business as usual. Like everything's changed. So we're, we're noticing things more, right? We're more critical of them because we haven't gotten into patterns where we're just kind of 
things are just usual and we're ignoring it. And so now we notice this stuff and it's going to be really important that we approach work from a 360 view and look at humans three-dimensionally. I completely agree. I, it, when we talk about, especially what you just outlined, it takes me back to the scientific theory about causation and correlation, right? And so what happened was we went to this remote work environment because it was forced, and now we've made we've correlated remote work with causing these outcomes. And the reality is the theory is still true. Correlation and causation are not the same, right? You cannot always tie those things together. And what the remote work revealed was that we had poor processes in the first place. Mm-hmm. We had poor cultures in the first place. We had poor systems in the first place and the remote work happened to reveal it, but it didn't cause it. And what many organizations are saying now is, oh, this remote work doesn't allow collaboration. No, your organization didn't allow collaboration. You just forced it because people were in the same place and they were never collaborating. You just made them sit in the room together, right? <laughs> so yep. it's that correlation and causation is what many organizations are are fluffing it off and not saying our stuff doesn't work. They're saying remote work doesn't work. And it's like, no, it's actually your stuff for the most part. If, yeah. If people were truly connected, then the remote wouldn't have just detached everyone. You know, they, their connections would have thrived regardless of situation. And I think that's true. You, you see organizations that had no problems, right? After the, through the switch to pandemic. And that's because they had trust they had safety and the connections were there. The relationships were there and they figured out new ways to live through those. And I think, I personally think this just shed a big spotlight on the lack of connection and, and the detachment that was already there. So then now that they're physically separated, that detachment's even more visible. Absolutely. I have organized companies that are clients that will say, I talk to my coworkers now that we are remote more than I did when we were together because they 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 had a culture of connection in the first place. So they're like, we I'd see them more often because now things that used to be when we were in the office, I would just call across the hall and just get on my phone and call. Now I want to see them. So we, we do these video meetings all the time. I hardly ever just pick up the phone and call them because I want to see them. And they're more connected now than they were when they were in the office. But that's because that organization actually had a culture of connection. I think that's so key. And the place that everyone needs to start looking if they're experiencing some of these things, rather than trying to think about like, what's the right tool or what days should we be on site or not? It's like, how are the people feeling and how are they taken care of and how are they relating? Absolutely. Because I don't I don't think people take into account the impact of how we feel when we work. You know, people mm. often say, oh, you're not paid to feel you're paid to work. We're not paid to like each other. And it's like, come on, you guys, let's think about the outcomes. So if I force you to be in the office and you don't really want to be there, what does that outcome look like? You know, what type of productivity are you are you going to give me? What type of collaboration is going to happen when I know, you know, we all know you don't want to be here? Yeah. I mean, go back to your son in that classroom. The teacher could have done any number of things differently. That would have possibly created totally different outcomes, right? But instead, she elevated. She found a moment to take the strengths and utilize them. 
And if she had created an environment where he didn't want to be there, you know, that could have set the trajectory totally differently. Oh, it would have been disastrous. And even by doing that, she created an environment whereby he was engaged in things that were not engaging for him, right? Because Mm -hmm. it created this symbiotic situation. You know what? I care way more about animals than any of you do. And you give me my moment. So now when it's not my moment, I need to be engaged in the things that you care about. And we see the same thing in the workplace. You know what? Hey, this is a concern for you. It's not a concern for me, but if I give it attention, when the reverse happens, you will now give me your attention. And it's a game changer for how we cooperate, how we collaborate. I want to switch gears a little bit and hit on something that we talked about in the pre-show, which was something you're passionate about, which is kind of broadening the scope of DEI and specifically, you know, how companies are looking at diversity and dimensions of diversity. Oh, yes. So one of the things that bothers me, especially as a person that goes around doing this work around DEI, is that oftentimes when we talk about DEI, we hit the top three, race, gender, LGBTQIA+. Outside of that, people don't even think about those different dimensions. And when I'm talking to organizations, I really want them to talk about DEI with specificity. I go to companies and they call me a teacher. We need help with our DEI. We need to be more diverse. Cool. In what area? With what population? Where is the concern? And they're like, oh, just more diversity. Really, though? Like, <laughs> what, what, what issues have you recognized? Have you done an assessment to see where you are? Like, I work with a small firm out in Seattle, and they said, Deetra, we think we need more Black people. I said, that's awesome. What do you have to support that that's the need. And when we did the assessment, they were looking for more people in a particular profession. When we did the assessment for their area, only 6% of the people in that profession were black. This company had about 10% black people in that profession. I said, everybody else in this profession is looking at you like you have them all. Where would you get more people from? And so being able to stop and say, what is the real diversity we need? When we looked at it, what they really didn't have was gender equity. Mm. And while you're trying to fill this area, this is really, they had gender diversity, but they didn't have gender equity. And so when we're talking about DEI, I need organizations really big talking about that with specificity and not with generality. I love that. And, you know, I often see, I, I saw a chart the other day. It was like, this is what diversity should be. And this is what diversity looks like. And it was a, a an org chart and the, the should be, and it was pretty well distributed. It was good equity. On the other one is like, this is what it looks like. All the non-white people are like in the lowest rung of the org chart, right? And that and that's happening quite often. Yeah. Some companies I work with will say, oh, we're very diverse. Okay, great. Let me see what it looks like. And on paper, just with the raw numbers, they're accurate. Oh my gosh, your diversity looks amazing. But when I break that down again, when I'm saying address this with specificity, okay, wait a minute. So you mean to tell me you have a company that's, let's say, 50 plus percent minority, but 100 percent of your senior leadership is white and male and of a certain age? How is how is that equity? How how 
are you really diverse throughout the organization? And I mean, for this particular company, by the time you had to get about three layers down from senior leadership before you started to see any real diversity, Mm -hmm. you know, they would sprinkle a woman in there every now and then. But to see color three layers down from senior leadership with a company that was over 50 percent people of color. Well, yeah, I mean, and, and, and it's a big challenge, too, even for companies that want to do it. Those are hard conversations to have because if you got a full leadership team, who are we going to replace? Like, who, who gets demoted to, to make these changes? You know, these are non-trivial conversations. Yeah, and the problem is that's that's where most companies, that's almost where I say we part ways with most of the companies we work mm. with because everybody wants to talk about it, but no one wants to be about it, right? And Mm -hmm. even down to one company we worked with, they said, oh my gosh, a a position's opening up and we're going to identify a minority candidate and put them in the position. And I said, wait a minute, this sounds very much to me like you're about to set this person up for failure. Mm-hmm. Have you prepared this person to be in senior leadership? So diversity is not just about finding an open position and finding a quote unquote potentially qualified minority candidate and putting them in the position. Real diversity is developing these people so that they're ready to step into these positions and be successful. And most often how I've seen diversity done these days is they haven't stopped and said, what is our real succession plan? Because mm. the Succession plan is not just about what's going, what's opening up and who will fill it. It's about preparing those people to successfully fill those positions. And that's the part that we aren't talking about when we're talking about DEI. Yeah. And, you know, I think there's opportunities to make bigger tables so mm-hmm. more people can play in different ways. Another thing that came to mind when you were talking about, you know, if there's a representative population of like 6 8% and someone's got 10%, are they geographically dispersed? Do they need to start thinking about other geographies that they can show up in if they're feeling like they're lacking? And, and um, what other ways are you seeing that folks should be looking at diversity? Because you mentioned the top three are getting the focus. I'm kind of curious, like, what are people blind to at the moment? I, You know what? I think people are blind to so much because, especially in the U.S., the focus, we're, we see mm-hmm. every day what we sh- should focus on. And so our lens is narrowed down to what the news shows us, right? So we see situations like a George Floyd murder. We see situations like people being killed in the street by cops just from being pulled over. And so our lens focuses on that. But there's even broader things. So I'll give you an example. I was working with an organization and I was doing training for them on language and linguistic bias. And When I proposed it, they thought, wait a minute, but this is a medical company. And one of the issues they were having is that their doctors, these are MD doctors who were being treated poorly because they had, quote unquote, thick accents. Mm. So they're being treated less than their level of expertise, actually brought in a doctor who was an expert in a particular area. And this man was treated like garbage because he had a thick accent and people kind of implied that he wasn't as smart as people said he was. Wow. And that's a linguistic bias. 100%. My friend's dad is a lawyer and has a, a thick Texas accent. And he actually, he told me that he intentionally does not try to hide it because it, it makes people underestimate him. And as a lawyer, 
That's what he you wants. Know, you don't want to underestimate a lawyer. I'll just say that. <laughs> and it happens all the time. I mean, even down to we. For one of them that we talk about is people that have English as a second language. Mm-hmm. But even regionally, I remember when Bill Clinton was running for president, Mike Royoke, who's a famous uh, journalist, was commenting on, he mentioned how Bill Clinton had gone to Oxford in England had been to the Ivy League and his and all out of all the accolades he gave to that spoke to Bill Clinton's level of intelligence he followed the statement up with but how come you still sound like a hillbilly implying that none of those accolades matter because you sound stupid right mm-hmm. implying that if you sound like you have a certain type of accent then the automatic implication is that you're less than intelligent and think about how that translates in the workforce if i know that a quote-unquote southern accent sounds less intelligent Am I going to consider you for promotion because, oh, my gosh, that's like nails on the chalkboard when I hear them speak? Mm-mm. If I that's know bad. that a thick accent because of, or your 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 word usage isn't so great because this is your second language, despite the fact that you probably speak five or six languages and might be more intelligent than everyone here. I'm judging you based on that. Right. But these are just the different dimensions that we have to step into. Even when we talk about age as a dimension in the pre-show, we kind of talked about this a little bit, but. People are completely blanking out on the idea that there's this huge population of talent that we're overlooking because boomer like what these people have been in the workforce longer than you've been alive. They've run companies. They've seen companies rise, fail, plateau, and they know this thing inside and out. And they are still mentally and intellectually viable. And we haven't considered this as our next source of talent. Really? Yeah. I mean, it's when you mentioned that, it really struck a chord with me. And I've got several colleagues that have told me about folks that they've employed in a, on a part-time basis that were like, you know, COOs of decent-sized companies or, you know, a head of sales at some company, and they're now semi-retired. Or, you know, in one case, the, there was a 60-year-old lady, certainly 60 is not that old, but her husband's older than she is, and he's already retired. And so she's not looking for a full-time job because she's kind of semi-retired with him but like the wealth of knowledge and capability, and you can imagine like you're you're kind of batting outside of your uh, range, right? Because you're able to hire someone on a part-time basis. So I think the age thing plus this like fractional mindset could unlock a lot of potential for companies. Oh my gosh, it's, I'm one of those crazy radical HR professionals that's always on the edge. So all of my colleagues are always like, okay, Dietra, What radicalness are you into right now? And that's one that's for me. I often say everything that we began to set up to make the millennials happy at work is exactly what this population needs. They have no desire to come into your office every day. They want to be semi-retired. They want to contribute, go about their business. They don't want you hanging all over them. They're not interested in making a whole bunch of money just to work 
85 hours a week. They want to enjoy their retirement, but they really want to remain intellectually stimulated. And so the very thing that we were setting up for them is great for this population. I remember I was able to hire an assistant once, and this woman was the assistant to the chairman of the board for a major corporation. There is no way I would have been able to afford or even think about affording her, but for her being semi-retired and just wanting something to stimulate her mind. A lot of the structures that we have right now in my company were things that she put in place from seeing how they ran this major corporation where she was the direct EA to the chairman of the board. I think that's super smart, you know, learning from folks who've done it before and and have the stories to tell, you know, a lot to be learned from those folks. And I think a lot of times they get discounted. At last year's facilitation conference, we had Huli speak about this and about how detrimental ageism can be. Mm-hmm. It, it's huge because, and here's the, the biggest part that we have to stop and think about, again, this different dimension of diversity that kind of goes untalked about. No one really talks about, aside from the fact that in the U.S. it's illegal, you're not supposed to do it, mm-hmm. but people find ways around it. No one is really talking about ageism in the workplace, right? Right. I just had this thought that even if people aren't trying to work around the law, a lot of times it's subliminal. Mm-hmm. That's really how unconscious bias works, right? It's this thing that happens without you thinking about it, which is why it's really so difficult to teach people about it because they don't recognize I have taken an adverse action against someone based on my own bias, right? So we have in our heads that even think about weight. We have in our heads that heavy people who are, quote unquote, overweight are unhealthy, which also means that they're sluggish, which also means that they're lazy, which also means that they're unmotivated. And we make a person's weight mean all these things that we have no facts to support. One of the, one of my employees is will be considered as overweight. This woman's a runner. Mm. Like, She's a runner, (laughs) like runs miles every single day. Who who is doing that? And I, listen, I work out every day. Every single day I work up. First thing I get up in the morning, I pray and I work out. I am not running miles every day. Good for her. And, you know, it reminds me of, I just saw the ex-COO of Bumble speak last week. And she's got a new company. She's now CEO and founder of Found. And they're reframing the whole weight conversation because for so many years, it's always been about weight loss, like Weight Watchers and things, right? And they're talking about weight care, Mm. which I think is such a lovely reframing. And it it makes sense, right? Because Bumble was reframing the dating app for a whole new generation and for women. And now Mm -hmm. she's looking at how do we reframe this whole like sense of weight? Yeah. I, I think it's so important. I think that that reframing has to happen across the board. And, and it directly speaks to the thing I'm passionate about, which is DEI. It's reframing what we've made all of these things mean, right? Because mm-hmm. the essence of DEI is really just that. That's where the bias. Here's the thing. We all have bias. You only talk about the negative bias, right? Because there are biases that are positive biases. I see this person and I prefer to do X with this person. I prefer to do Y with that person. And that's a bias as well. So when we start talking about reframing, it's 
diving into what people have made these things mean and reframing that. And that's how we'll get to the essence of really diving into making our DEI efforts really have the outcomes that we're hoping they'll have. I love that. And there's something that is pervasive across companies where words will get thrown around jargon often, but sometimes it's like internal brand words or whatever. They almost become slogans. Mm-hmm. And over time, they lose meaning. It's not quite semantic satiation, you know, where you say the same word a bunch of times and you, you're like, what does it mean? But it kind of is. It's like the corporate version of that, right? And to your point, it's so important when you're doing work, no matter if it's DEI or what, to make sure that folks at least know what they're talking about and can agree on the terms and have a fundamental, foundational understanding of the why, the purpose of, of the work. Absolutely. I, and that's what the bulk of our work when we go in and do DEI work is really not about teaching DEI because people have gotten so much DEI learning. It's crazy, but it's about using that DEI learning. Most often mm. when we go in, we start off with our DARE model because what we recognize is people have learned the stuff. They just were never taught the conversational competence to use the stuff. And so that's our biggest thing. Let's give you the conversational competence to actually discuss this stuff and have productive outcomes because everybody's walking around with an encyclopedia of knowledge, just not using any of it when it comes to this stuff. I love that conversational competence. And you mentioned the DARE model. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Yes, actually, it was the the essence of one of my TEDx uh, talks. And it was a model I created. I'm a person that's very big on formulas. The, the former teacher in me from back in elementary school. <laughs> and what I realized, and this is really true, back when I was teaching, when I was playing teacher with my cousins, I realized that if I was able to give them a formula, they were more likely to be successful or more likely to try things they didn't understand. And so the reality is in any situation, people want to improve their likelihood of success. So if something is difficult, I will shy away from it because the likelihood of success goes down. But if you give me a formula, my likelihood of success goes up, which means my desire to try it also goes up. Like, again, the Pythagorean theorem. No one is trying to figure out the hypotenuse of a triangle. But if you say A squared plus B squared equals C squared, I'll try it out because it gets easier. So that's why I developed the DARE model. I wanted to give people a formula that made these conversations easier. And so the DARE model is very simple. It's describe, acknowledge, review, and engage. Describe versus interpret, acknowledge similarities without minimizing differences, review the narratives we have accepted as fact, and engage for conversation, not conversion. And that's the formula that I give people for navigating these tough conversations that gives them a tool to create some conversational competence, though they had not been taught that well. That is awesome. And we'll make sure to get that in the show notes. I know we have some URLs planned and I'll make sure we have that TEDx linked over so folks can find it in the show notes. And as we're going to come nearing the end here, I want to just shift a little bit toward in your view of the world, if you continue this work and you're really successful and others get on board and join your cause, which I'm sure there's plenty of people already on board, but more and more people join and it's greatly successful What does that create in the future? Like, what's that future you see when people are doing this work really well and the outcomes it's creating? For me, it would mean a social impact, but a 
a social impact that's accompanied by a physical impact for my clients. Because I tell people doing this work is not just what's socially right, it's what's physically right. It's going to impact your bottom line. So it's more than just saying we don't have enough of these types of people in place. It's saying this type of person is the best thing for this particular opportunity. And without that, we're going to fail. It's being able to step back and say, what systems do we have in place that prevent these highly qualified people from stepping into the roles they they should be in and what is that costing us and reversing that cost loss into a cost increaser for the organizations, which turns around and impacts all of those communities that that organization begins to impact. I want to see a world whereby communities and companies aren't in silos where it's a symbiotic relationship where we all recognize we have to kind of the old native uh, native concepts of this doesn't belong to anybody it's ours and we're all responsible for working collaboratively to sustain it and make it work amazing i love it well as we're kind of drawing to a close here i want to make sure to give you an opportunity to leave our listeners with the final thought So my final thought is really the idea of asking ourselves, what is my role in all of this? What is my role in tearing down the silos that currently exist between communities and companies? What is my role in making sure that people who don't have the privilege that I have get some sort of equity in this process? And we all have some sort of privilege. And so what is the privilege that I have that I can lend to someone who doesn't have what I have? Because I'm going to need someone who has a privilege that I don't have to lend theirs to me. So really thinking about what is my role in making all of this work? Because until we all decide we have a role, it'll never actually work. Wow. I love that. And just want to say, I, I really appreciated the time today. It's, it was a pleasure chatting and look forward to chatting again sometime soon. Absolutely. Thanks so much, Dietra. Thanks for joining me for another episode of Control the Room. Don't forget to subscribe to receive updates when new episodes are released. And if you want to know more, head over to our blog where I post weekly articles and resources about radical inclusion, team health, and working better voltagecontrol.com.